Probably no other scripture is as familiar to just about all of us as the one about the Good Samaritan. That's the way I heard it said when I was young. And I don't know about you, but when I hear that story, my mind goes immediately to geography. Who is my neighbor? And my mind jumps right to the neighborhood. Does yours not? You go to those nearby, physically. Neighbor means nearby. But Jesus wasn't being geographic in what he said. In fact, he seems to have intentionally moved away from customary geography as they thought of geography when he was telling this story. And we'll see, I think you've already seen many times, that he was dealing here not with geography but with character, with a felt need, and finally with relationship. Who is my neighbor? And we've come to understand in the modern day, if we didn't already, that earth is our neighborhood. I have until 12 o'clock, do I not? (laughs) Scare you all to death. (laughs) Earth is our neighborhood. And we only have to look to a few places for us to realize how neighborly we are in the earth, good or bad. A few months ago, an awful earthquake in Haiti happened. And of course, our first thought, a great many of us, was how can we help? I think we were answering a question that wasn't even asked at that point. Who is my neighbor? Are the Haitians my neighbor? And outpourings came not only from our neighborhood, not only from our time zone, but Help from every time zone on earth began to show up at that one little spot in the Caribbean. We are neighbors earth-wide. And when we, excuse me, when we read up on the more negative side at times, we come to understand that coal is mined in Appalachia and shipped to China by boat, and China burns it for fuel to make t-shirts that are shipped back to us. And while all that's going on, the burning of the coal sends stuff up in the air and provides for us the beautiful orange sunsets here, the other half around the world, as the fly ash from their burning, as well as ours and everyone else's traverses the whole world. We do good worldwide. We do harm worldwide. We are neighbors in ways we do like and in ways we don't. The economy is our neighborhood. And I had never thought about it before. You perhaps had not either. But when we began to see the extraordinary millions and billions of dollars that were accumulated by one or two or three individuals in our financial centers, or a few individuals in our financial centers, 
it began to make sense to our minds that all that cash that was going to a few folk was not going to places where salaries might happen at smaller amounts to more and more people throughout the community. So that the billion-dollar income in New York pulled loose the billion dollars that might have been spent in Kentucky on plants where work could be done. We are neighbors in all sorts of ways. Faith is our neighborhood also. This strange faith that we have called Christian moved out of Jerusalem from Nazareth to Jerusalem and then Corinth and then Rome and then London and then Amsterdam and then Nashville and Atlanta. Where else, even in the places where it has been outlawed for decades, this faith is a neighborhood. And so finally, Roanoke and Standing Rock make connections because in our faith, excuse me, we are neighbors. And it has to do with character and relationships. We are trying to be good neighbors. And when we fail, we acknowledge our fouling of the neighborhood and we start over again to try to be good neighbors. That's what this story is getting at. The question that came up with a man trying to justify himself before Jesus when Jesus had already had a dialogue with him and the man had given a wonderful answer to his own question when Jesus bounced it back at him. And in that answer, he talked about the love of God and the love of neighbor and how matched they are and how essential to each other. And then seeking to justify himself, whatever that means, but we all, I suppose, do it. Carry the conversation along a little further, trying to look good in the conversation, trying to sound like we know what we're talking about. I've done that, haven't you? And so did the lawyer with Jesus. Well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Let's, let's tear this apart a little bit more. Let's analyze who are we talking about here. And Jesus then told a story. It's easy to lose sight of what Jesus teaches. Because many ideas that we run into are at odds with the framework that he has. I want to give you an illustration. I spent a few years as a campus minister in Charlottesville, and that meant a lot of fairly deep, deeper than I could handle sometimes, conversations with students who were in the midst of four or five years of deepening their spirit and their faith and their ideas about all sorts of things. And I still remember the day a young man came in, a very attractive young man who had on his mind something new he had just discovered. He had just run into the philosopher 
Ayn Rand. I don't know if you ever have. I seldom have otherwise. But Ayn Rand, she spells her name A-Y-N, Ayn Rand was a philosopher of the mid-20th century that some of you know a great deal about. Others of us have heard. And this young man had become so fascinated with what she said. And he summarized it for me in sort of the way I summarize it for you, saying that if each of us work real hard for ourselves, don't pay much attention to what anybody else needs, but if I work really hard for me and you work really hard for you, then everything sort of grows. Everything accumulates. Everything gets better so that my self-interest and yours together move to help everybody. And the whole world feels better when that happens. That's her philosophy in summary. And I've watched that philosophy through the years. I've never forgotten that conversation. But I've noticed that that philosophy of self-interest, which does have some things to commend it. Some of us have done wonderful with our self-interest, wonderful things. But it has also spawned some other things about our society that we may want to question. And I'm thinking that a few years ago when everybody was talking about the me generation, you remember that? We may not be over it. The me generation may be a direct result of that philosophy of self-interest. That if you do all you can for you and I do all I can for me and we don't do much to help each other, then we're all going to be better off. And why this sticks in my mind is because it is so deeply in contrast with this story that Jesus told and many others of the stories that Jesus told. Now, this is a very live philosophy, and it will continue. It has had great strengths underpinning the economic system that we operate under, and you'll hear it pushed. A few months ago, a few years ago, I guess it was, two or three years ago, I was fascinating to discover, fascinated to discover in the newspaper an article that one of the major banks in our country, the head of the bank was retiring, and he had seen to it that that bank is going to underwrite an Ann Rand department in a great many colleges throughout the country. Wake Forest was the focus but it was a great number of other schools where that bank and that president of that bank felt that it was essential for us to study this philosophy of what we call, anyway, self-interest. The point was to strengthen the basis for all of us getting better. And so was Jesus' story it was to encourage us to find ways of getting better. But the contrast could hardly be any sharper. That Jesus was saying self-interest is not the way to go. Relationship, care of someone in need is basic. Self-interest is basic and powerful. 
We put it in a very favorable way. Who's going to look after you if you don't look after yourself? That's been said to me. I've probably said it to others. Sometimes it is essential to be said. Philosophers may see that as a necessary foundation for a good economy, while Christians may see the perilous and fractured side of self-interest. We have, for centuries now, called it original sin. This self-focus that is natural to all of us and which is fostered by some philosophies becomes a very pernicious thing in our hearts and souls and causes us not to care. Jesus counters then this self-preservation with this story of generosity from a stranger. Notice that. Jesus isn't telling us that we ought to like Samaritans better. He might do that, but that's not the point of the story. He is in this story making the Samaritan someone we want to be like. And we know, of course, that Samaritans were the out group in the audience he was talking to. And it would have been painful in many ways to hear Jesus commending a Samaritan when the really good guys are us. Jesus set up the story so that neither kinship nor common faith was the motivation. It was not geography either. He set up the story so that need and character and relationship was the focus of what's good. I hope you already know and may remember the story of Thomas Cannon. You may recognize the name. He was a man of very limited means. But over the years, even with very limited means, he frequently wrote checks of $1,000 each to folks in need or worthy causes. He had a habit of looking in the Richmond Times-Dispatch. That's where he lived. And finding that so-and-so, for instance, had been picked to go to boys' state or girls' state. And he would send a $1,000 check to enable that person to go. He would find that a particular society supporting cancer research or heart research was doing something good, and he would write out a $1,000 check and send it to that society. Unasked, unexpected. He said before he died in 2005 that his motive came because he did not die in an explosion in the Navy many years ago. Many people around him were killed, and he had to ask, why not me? And so Thomas Cannon, though he would not install a bathroom in his house, 
though he would not do other things that we would expect he would take care of first. 155 times he wrote $1,000 checks to folks who he thought needed it. His wife and the children apparently supported him, and his son talked about him afterwards in the newspaper article. Thomas Cannon's own parting words, ending words, in an article about his life in the Washington Post was, help somebody. That's all he said. He wouldn't talk much about what he had done. They discovered it in other ways. But he kept saying, help somebody. And I don't know, but I would bet that when he wrote his checks out, a good many times this scripture flowed through his mind and his heart. Who is my neighbor? Help somebody. And in that way, Jesus defined, perhaps for a few people, redefined what neighbor means. And Jesus closed his story to faces that he saw that day in such a way that we get the message also. And you remember it. Go and do. Go and do likewise. Jesus found that outside of the geography of neighborliness, there was a way to stretch the heart and also to find a way to give generously as God has given to us. So we go and do likewise.